Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content that we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, and you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In today's episode, we visit with Howard Covington, Jr., author of Behind the Bank, Hugh McCall's Chapter 2, an in-depth look into the great legacy of Hugh McCall's philanthropy after his retirement from Bank of America and some of the unique aspects of his character and philosophy that made him successful. In his 80s, McCall remains a force for good in Charlotte, North Carolina, from his career at Bank of America to the capital he invests into his neighbors in order to better their community. Paul Leonard, former CEO of Habitat for Humanity, had this to say about the book. Hugh McCall has never stopped learning, listening, caring, investing, and sharing his remarkable resources and knowledge with people from all walks in life. Nothing motivates Hugh McCall more than leading collaborations of strong voices to spark innovative solutions for the challenges of our time, says Michael Marciano, president and CEO of the Foundation for the Carolinas. Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Landis. Yeah, so uh, first of all, congratulations on the book. Well, thank you. Yes. Yeah. It's been kind of rocky getting it out, but it'll come. It's yeah. Going to be yeah. Hey, well, look, if, if there weren't some rocks to get over, uh, what, what, what would writing books be all about, right? Yeah. 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 So you've written books, uh, Howard, I, I, I looked you up a little bit here, and uh, you've written books on uh, a lot of different topics over the years, but also various icons in North Carolina state history. You wrote about Henry Fry, the North Carolina's first African American chief justice of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. 
Uh, you wrote about Terry Sanford in a book you called Politics, Progress, and Outrageous Ambition. And I'm just curious, you know, why did you want to write about Hugh McCall, who really is in essence the subject of two books, because you you wrote a book about the story of Nations Bank, for which he's mostly responsible. So why, uh, what what motivated you? What got you interested and excited about writing about Hugh McCall? Well, it, to be perfectly honest, it was a friend of his, a hunting companion, who called me up out of the blue and said, you need to write a book about Hugh McCall. And I said, why? There have already been two of them I, you know, had written. Why does he need another one? And he convinced me that there may be something else there. So a couple of weeks later, I was sitting with McCall at his home in Charlotte, and we began talking. And I realized that the book isn't about banking. It's not about business. Uh, it's about how a man uses his life um, and invests himself in his community. Uh, McCall retired from the bank and, and 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago, and I think his last two decades have probably been as significant and important to him personally and fulfilling as um, as as the, the 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 previous forty years when he was a banker. Mm -hmm. uh, he's he's not a complicated person. He's a very straightforward, honest, candid uh, subject to talk to, and that's what made this story uh, all the more compelling because. As, as his reputation preceded him, I mean, he doesn't pull any punches. And he talked honestly about how, they, um, how society has, uh, uh, the changes in, in, um, uh, in his community and in the relations, both in the equity and equality, uh, over, have, uh, have impressed him in the last uh, two decades so that he is using the time and the resources he has to make life better for his fellow man. That's not what he's not sitting on the golf course, clipping coupons like most retired bankers. Yeah, that's interesting. We're going to talk a little bit about his personality because you feature that in the book. In addition to talking about the 20 years of good that he's uh, continued to, to foster since he left uh, uh, bank of America. Um, and you're going to talk about social capital and his uh, interaction with the African-American community. Uh, but let me just uh, tease out to listeners here. We're going to be, uh, after this episode, we're going to be talking about writing nonfiction on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Rears podcast. So you can jump over after this episode and hear that uh, with Howard and I discussing uh, what he's been doing in the nonfiction world, how to get it done and so forth. And he had to do that when he was, uh, as he said here just now, interviewing uh, the subject of this book, Hugh McCall, who is just a dynamic personality. And one of the things, Howard, you talk about in the book, uh, early on in the book, because you use an example of a, a couple of men who were going to start a barbershop in Walmart, and they they they, they kind of hook up with uh, Hugh McCall. Um, and this is what I guess I'm calling sort of the white versus black segment of our discussion, because Hugh McCall, he described when, let me just lay a little foundation here, he described when he got into the banking world, uh, as being an all-white male environment. He said, you, you said in the book, um, banking was a dull business presided over by gray-headed men where minimizing risk was paramount. 
And that's how he got into the business because he was white. That's the privilege that allowed him to get into this business of banking. Kind of made me remind me of Mary Poppins a little bit with the bankers in England who were only white men who pinched pennies. But talk about that a minute, how he went from this uh, man of privilege who was able to enter into this banking world. And then over the course of time, he sort of shifted uh, to recognize that privilege and to put it to some good in the African-American community. Well, I think McCall has has always had a concern for what he would call his teammates, the people he works with every day. Um, And that sort of goes back um, uh, to, you know, maybe some lessons he learned was when he was in the Marine Corps, that uh, as a Marine Corps officer, you look after your men first, and then you take care of yourself. And he carried that through to... um, to his leadership in the bank, and it uh, Nation or NCNB uh, before Nations Bank was probably more interested in developing um, uh, a clientele among African Americans than most of the other North Carolina banks. They were doing things uh, in the black community in the '70s that other banks uh, hadn't even begun to think about. But McCall really started, I guess, uh, looking and paying attention to uh, equity within the ranks when he began um, uh, making changes that uh, made life more enjoyable, made work more fulfilling for women. Uh, But he also had always had had a great concern about uh, the equality gap, uh, which he talked about in a speech back in the uh, the early nineties, uh, speaking to the chamber of commerce, I found this, this speech and it wasn't that much different from one he delivered 25 years later, um, after the, um, the riots that had torn up downtown Charlotte, uh, or disrupted life in downtown Charlotte and which, uh, really affected, uh, uh, affected McCall's own, own thinking and got him to, um, more invested in, developing a conversation and understanding his own racial biases and learning how to, um, how to deal with that. You talk about that uh, early in the book, that example I gave about the two men who were going to start the barbershop. There's a scene in there um, where they're described sitting in front of him. And one of them said, I'd never sat in front of a white guy who's done the things he's done I never even thought he'd even try to give any thought to how to help black people. And I saw him thinking about his past decisions and how he could have helped black people or how he thought he was helping black people, but the help didn't get to the guys like us. You could see how he was thinking about that as we talked. Is that what you're talking about? The fact, this sort of evolution yeah. that, that he had. And, and he, he very readily admits that his own biases um, come up, as he puts it, unsummoned. You, you find another example was uh, he was hearing uh, um, he was he was listening to a woman, uh, Dion Nelson, talk about uh, developing her business. She was a Harvard um, uh, had a Harvard MBA, and and you readily confessed to her that she must have had some help to get that, uh, to get that degree because, uh, otherwise how would a black woman succeed on that playing field? And of course there was nothing 
nothing. Uh, she had earned that degree honestly, but he realized that it was his own prejudice that uh, that was coming um, coming out, and uh, he's begun and he began dealing with that more directly, particularly in a in a monthly session that he has with a group of thirty to forty uh, men, most of them not his age. Uh, talking about race and and um, culture in in Charlotte. Yeah, one of the things you you discussed in the book, which I found interesting, and I've seen some other authors uh, explore this history as well. The Brooklyn neighborhood in Charlotte, they've explored it both in fiction and in nonfiction. But you talk about the Washington Heights neighborhood, mm-hmm. uh, and there's this sort of uh, uh, dark mark on Charlotte's history as it relates to those neighborhoods and what 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 you know the white leaders did by pushing out, you know, the black residents, uh, and then not uh, coming to their aid. And he kind of, he saw that and he sort of invested with hammers and nails into the habitat for humanity. And it, I think maybe it says something about his personality because he has a ranch in Texas. He loves to go hunting, et cetera, that he would find it, uh, of value, not just to place money there, but to actually go roll up his sleeves and take part in, uh, you know, measuring twice, cutting once, and so forth. <laughs> well, this all started uh, really back in the 80s when he, one of his co-workers um, uh, just out of the blue invited him to join a Habitat team. And um, he showed up and, and worked uh, like everybody else. Um, in fact, the, 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 the crew leader that day on this early Habitat project uh, uh, said, isn't that the, isn't your, that's your boss over there helping us out? And he said, and she, she said, yeah, that's Hugh McCall. He's chairman of, of uh, NCMB. And he said, well, I've got him humping toilets. <laughs> and that when he, when his retirement uh, uh, came about, uh, uh, his, his coworkers were looking for some way to recognize his, his career and the upshot was a $10 million grant from um, uh, then Bank America, Bank of America, to Habitat Humanity to build houses. And for the next five years, Hugh joined a group of uh, co-workers, uh, volunteers, uh, Habitat volunteers who would leave Charlotte at least once a month and go spend the weekend building a Habitat house somewhere in Idaho and Washington and California and Mexico, anywhere that Bank of America did business, and they built almost 200, over 200 houses um, over a five-year period, and this wasn't just for show. He was doing this as, um, as, as, a, as part of a regular monthly commitment um, to, uh, uh, to help people uh, uh, find a home, which he believed was one of the most important things that, um, that you could make available to uh, uh, to someone these days, if they could build on, build on their life could be improved by the equity that they would build in that, that house. Mm, yeah, that's great. The sweat equity. And also you mentioned fundraising. I mean, the, the contribution of dollars, and we're going to talk about, uh, human calls, unique fundraising skills. And before we're through with the episode here, but before, before we do that, uh, I want to talk briefly about book covers and then I'm gonna have you do an author reading, uh, from the book, because uh, we like to to do that on the show. Uh, you went through two book covers here. One book cover had the uh, 
it, it, it had the Bank of America Tower on it. Then you went and you've revised it and the cover that's going to come out is going to have the portrait of Hugh McCall on it. But when I was looking at the earlier book cover, it made me start to think about this tower because I can remember growing up in the 60s in Charlotte when NCMB was the best little bank in the neighborhood, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, 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 and look what it became. And what it became in my lifetime was, uh, you know, this huge building that I watched them build, you know, as I worked down, uh, down well, I called it downtown then. I guess we have to call it uptown now. But, uh, you know, I saw this building go up and it, it towers over the skyline. And in a lot of ways, it's hard to separate um uh, you know, Hugh McCall from that, that is a man who sort of is known to many people in Charlotte for what he's done. I was just curious about what you you think the metaphor of that large building standing in the middle of Charlotte uh, stands for in terms of the uh, city's growth and progress. Well, obviously it is. a. I think it's probably the most obvious testimony uh, or obvious evidence of, of McCall's commitment to Charlotte. Uh, when he was putting together this bank, which became Bank of America, uh, it was uh, moving the headquarters out of Charlotte was non-negotiable. Now, there's some, he said, he, you know, the, the deal fell apart uh, a few years earlier because uh, bank, bank, then Bank America was insistent on, on keeping the headquarters, any kind of headquarters of a merged operation in San Francisco. That wouldn't, that he'd never do. So McCall, the the tower, the Bank of America building is really the uh, the most obvious uh, uh, investment in 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 uptown Charlotte. But you look at what uh, what happened in Fourth Ward uh, and how that has has uh, evolved over the last forty years. Same thing with Third Ward. Uh, the other buildings along uh, along Tryon Street there. Uh, you could, I guess, you could argue that you know Bank of America sort of owns North Tryon Street, mm, yeah. and but interestingly, I think one of the things that, or I know one of the things that is most um, most satisfying to Hugh was not not just that tall building, but what stands at its foot, and that's the transportation center. Uh, that was a. Um, uh, that was a project that he he, he asked Harvey Gant to um, to design, and uh, and Ron Leeper, who was uh, someone who he had helped get started in the construction business, build, uh, and it really was designed and and now even today is is um, one of his proudest achievements because it's it continues to serve people who. Uh, are dependent on public transportation who need a place to get out of the rain and who need shelter while they wait um, uh, to move about the city. Yeah. I, I remember growing up in Charlotte where the, all the buses stopped and lined up at the corner of trade, right. trade and trade and trying, and they got, it, it's a better uh, way to get in and out now. Uh, let's do this. Let's do a little author reading here. Um, this is from a later section in the book, which kind of describes, um, you know, some of Hugh McCall, uh, in his uh, in in his later life, and uh, anything you want to do to set that up, I think the chapter is titled "A Second Legacy," and you're just going to read part of it here, right? Um, the chapter title comes from something one of um, uh, one of uh, 
the people I talked to who who being helped by McCall, a black businessman, uh, described his uh, uh, his experience with McCall. But and that's generally what this chapter is about: is how he has uh, he today spends probably more ninety percent of his time working with um, uh, with uh, black entrepreneurs. Uh, McCall, who turned 85 in the summer of 2020, says people tend to write off the elderly once they move into their ninth decade. The 80s are said to be the time when those with snow on the mountain are seen, not heard. Yet he is seldom still and manages complicated affairs, handling extended conversations with clarity and reasonable recall for a man of his years. He struggles from time to time to find the right word or a name, but only because he values the virtue of precision. He's never been sloppy with the language. There's never been what might be called slack time in McCall's life. Indeed, once he logged three quarters of a century, he seemed to apply apply an even greater sense of urgency. His assistant, Paula Washam, regularly updates a daily schedule he keeps in a loose-leaf notebook that's never far from hand. He claimed that he doesn't go looking for things to do, rather opportunities find him. As a result, he spends much of his time talking and working with people who begin as strangers, but usually end up as good friends. At any given time, his disciples, who are usually half his age, may include as many as a half dozen or so aspiring businessmen, nearly all of whom are African Americans. For them, it's a once in a lifetime shot at being part of what one of them called McCall's second legacy. Everyone wants a piece of a man who once figured irrelevancy was a likely companion to retirement. He once believed there would come a time when people at the Bank of America would stop taking his calls. When that happened, he'd fade into the background, little more than a portrait on the wall, just another former CEO. Yet 20 years on, he still has the ability to move people to do things, even big things. He remains one person in Charlotte whose call can convene a meeting of the city's most influential and resourceful civic and corporate leaders, says his friend Michael Marsicano at the Foundation for the Carolinas. I think he learned that his influence was not just by the seat he held, said Marsicano. It was by the man that he was and all that had been done for so many and in so many different subject areas. He just had all this capital with people to keep going, and he's led ever since. Yeah, that's great. I like that uh, section that you selected, um, which gets to my topic of uh, the retired life, because we actually we're recording this in uh, February. um, And an episode that just released today was with Dr. Chuck Edwards. And he's talking about uh, this idea of transitions and retirement and people losing their memories. And he says, by the way, don't worry if you don't remember people's names. It's a natural thing and it doesn't bother him. <laughs> but, but but what he said was, uh, you, know, you know, the transitions can be hard. And you, you talk about this in the book that, uh, I mean, here we have a, a man who is a eat what you kill mentality type of banker. He was he was a hunter at the ranch, former Marine. He would give out uh, glass hand grenades to people after successful acquisitions. And, and, and as you say, when he retired, he believed, you know, the irrelevancy might be his uh, constant companion. Um, so here's my question. You know, retirement can be difficult uh, for the most successful people, probably people that are very successful in their careers, to step away. Why do you think Hugh McCall was able to take uh, that feeling that he might become irrelevant and turn it into something? And how is that a lesson to the rest of us who are struggling with what to do with the rest of our lives? 
Well, I think he realized that, uh, uh, you know, that there was so much more to life than just, uh, uh, than just making money. Uh, money had never been a, uh, a motivated motivation for him other than, uh, than, than keeping his, uh, keeping a roof over his head and, and his family fed, at least at the beginning, he said he was successful because he had to be. Um, so he's someone who sees, um, sees the importance of, of giving back to the community and building on, uh, what he had started in, in Charlotte. Uh, it troubled him that people couldn't get along, that, uh, uh, that the race relations in, in the city had gotten to the point that they spilled over into, um, into violence and, and trouble on the streets. That was a, that shook him up five years ago, six years ago, and it's continued to resonate in the, uh, in the, the business that he's, he's working on with, uh, uh, with the young, younger, I won't say young, but younger, uh, black entrepreneurs. Uh, he wants to see them succeed, uh, just as he wanted his customers back in the 20, in the sixties and seventies, uh, white businesses that NCMB was courting to succeed. Now, in fairness, um, you know, he just didn't go cold Turkey on the, uh, uh, on being in the business world because an idea came to him. He, he, he formed a group called McCall partners and they, they started a very successful investment banking firm, which, you know, it does, to me, $250 million and below sounds still pretty high, but it was something that d- didn't compete with bank of America when it came to putting deals together. And so he got into that space and you talk about in the book, how they, they found this one, uh, nice little, uh, venture with, uh, you know, Bojangles, which uh, we hear we hear about on every Sunday, that made them a lot of money. So he he kind of stayed in that yeah. world, that business world for a while. But then that allowed him probably the way you describe it to then transition from there to this other world where he was dealing more uh, as a mentor, as a fundraiser, as different things uh, based on his experience. And, and, and I want to talk about his fundraising side with you a minute because uh, – being in a law firm that, uh, even though I didn't do the work necessarily for the bank, uh, I was a partner in a firm that got a lot of work from the bank. So we had our arms twisted from time to time, right, to make contributions mm-hmm. to whatever was going on, which is good because it helped to build the city. But talk a little bit about his uh, his style. You tell the story about he raised how he raised $2 million in 40 seconds. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, it helps when you have friends you can lean on and say uh, – but that's a story he likes to tell. He was on the uh, on an elevator. Uh, this was back in the '90s, I think, and um, uh, on an elevator going forty floors from the top of the bu- his building down to uh, street level. And uh, his two passengers were Alan Dixon and Dick Spangler. Well, they were both quite wealthy, uh, but uh, while he had a cop- captive audience, he um, uh, he hit them up each for a million dollars for the arts and he raised two million dollars in about 45 seconds that's the most expensive elevator ride. that'll teach you not to get on the elevator with you mccall right <laughs> but that's the way he raises money he says i'm he's an opportunity um um a man of opportunity he looks for he doesn't um uh he doesn't follow the traditional style of fundraising and and organize and calls and so forth he looks for uh, times to uh, catch people when, uh, uh, 
maybe when they aren't necessarily expecting it. I, to my, to my, to me, the, um, the most satisfying and, and, uh, almost impossible story about his fundraising is, is what he did, um, for the Thrive campaign, which was to raise, uh, he set out to raise $20 million on his own, uh, to support, uh, the symphony. Uh, he figured that, uh, the symphony needed at least $2 million a year and he'd, He'd be around for another 10 years. So um, uh, rather than having to come up with $2 million a year for 10 years, he decided he'd just raise $20 million and that would take care of it. And by the time they were uh, that 10 years was up, he'd be gone and wouldn't have to worry about it anymore. Well, in three calls, he weighed or four calls, he raised almost $25 million. So Marsicano, Michael Marsicano at the foundation encouraged him to keep going. And on his own, ended up raising thirty-seven million dollars, mm. and that is outstanding. I mean, that's that's just really remarkable. You don't, you he didn't have a committee, he didn't have anybody uh, setting up his calls. He just was opportunistic and would uh, would uh, would catch people um, uh, and ask them for money. And because he, was- he had been giving money himself for all these years, uh, people uh, were reluctant to say no. He's a 21st century Oliver Twist, right? <laughs> he found opportunities to pick people's pockets who had a lot of money. Well, one of the examples there that you uh, in that uh, whole effort was, uh, I recall, he was he had a meeting with Brian Moynihan, the bank's new CEO, and uh, Moynihan, when they got through talking, you know, about bank related stuff, made the mistake of asking him if there was anything else he could do for Hugh. And you, you wrote in the book, he said, "Yeah, give ten million dollars to the symphony." And the response you wrote in the book was, he said, "Well." I think I'll have to speak to my people. To which McCall said, "Who the hell are you gonna speak to? You're the CEO." <laughs> <laughs> and and he walked out of the meeting with a commitment for ten million dollars. You know, <laughs> so, so there and you go. Again, got a lesson in um... <laughs> don't don't ask you McCall if there's anything else he needs. Right? <laughs> is that what you call? Because you talk about this concept of social capital in the book. Is that what you call? Uh, you know, putting your social capital to good purposes, to good use. Exactly. Um, I mean, McCall had, had been helping people and 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 responding to um, uh, to calls for for contributions over the years, and and people uh, want to respond back. Uh, he's devoted himself uh, to earnest conversation with uh, uh, with folks in. Uh, a group called the Champions, and um, and he gets earnest conversation in return. So it's it's a reciprocal kind of um, arrangement. But more importantly, I think, and I suppose really what you're getting at is here is somebody who has the contacts, who understands how the system works, and who can grease the skids for people who don't have the contacts or understand how the system works. It may be as simple as arranging for. Uh, a couple of his um, his black businessmen to attend uh, a uh, top tier kind of uh, event uh, downtown, as he did when Truist Bank was announced. So here, here are, uh, a couple of entrepreneurs who have good ideas who would have no opportunity to meet or be in the, even in the same room with the likes of Brian Moynihan or the CEO of Duke Power Company. Um, 
or the head of Atrium, uh, and and he gets them on the list, and they go in his place. Uh, somebody calls up and says, "Look, I, me, and my, my friends and I uh, are interested in in uh, being involved in a in a program for education. Do you have anybody who we can talk to?" So he puts he put them in touch with um, someone who was was um, uh, working on a curriculum for for reading in the public schools. It he becomes a clearinghouse. And this uh, is not, it's not all black and white. It's just uh, uh, connecting blacks with blacks or whites with whites, but it's, it's an interracial kind of um, arrangement. Yeah. So um, if I had Hugh on the show, I might ask him this question, how do you want to be remembered? But I've got the author who wrote about that piece in his book. Uh, you, you tell a story on page 32 of your book about uh McCall coming back from a Habitat uh, project, and uh, he said to his companion on the ride, at my funeral, I want to be remembered as someone who tried to make a difference. And this shocked his companion, who said, wait a minute, you, you, you've made a big difference. He said, let's talk about the difference you've made at your funeral. He said, no, 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 just say I tried. Um, what, what does that say about uh, Hugh McCall? Well, I think it, it probably is... Um uh going to surprise some folk who think that uh, he is uh, he's a man without humility uh but i found him to be a very honest and humble person in a lot of respects that um uh particularly in dealing with uh, his fellow man he wants to understand and be uh understood uh by the people around him and uh if he can do that um uh, successfully, then then that's uh, then that's satisfying. I'm not sure that he's looking for achievements. I don't think he's looking for a uh, another Bank of America tower. That's done. Uh, his achievements will be in the second legacy and the legacy he leaves with the uh, the the business people, the black entrepreneurs who are now taking advantage of a new private equity fund that um, uh, he helped create, bringing together uh, two black billionaire millionaires uh, to invest in um, black businesses in the Carolinas. Hmm. Well, Howard, you know from studying North Carolina history and the, and the growth of Charlotte uh, that, uh, and, and if you think about uh, novel writing and competition in general, you know, um, sometimes people, rise to the occasion because of the competition they have. Your protagonist gets better because of the antagonist that's up against them. Charlotte had the benefit over the years of having, uh, you know, some really strong uh, people in banking, you know, down the street that developed South Trine, right? And mm -hmm. those people, those people battle with each other. Who's going to have the tallest building? Who's going to give the most to, to Charlotte? Um, that's got to be a legacy of Charlotte too, right? Is the fact that uh, it had a lot of, people like Hugh McCall who were coming together and actually competing with other, each other to give away more money and to build taller buildings. Well, and that, uh, that was very true. Um, my, uh, <laughs> my father was in the fundraising business and did a lot of campaigns in Charlotte. And, um, he sort of, when, if he needed, uh, uh, one campaign, he'd go to find somebody at first union 
the exit campaign, he might find somebody at NCMB, then later Wachovia <laughs> and mixing in there, uh, all yeah. in the mix too, was were uh, the Belk brothers. I mean, maybe one of you got John Belk to do the Boy Scouts and and Tom Belk to do something else. So the hospital. So it there is a lot of competition like that. And the Allen and Stuart Dixon were were part of that. The Ruddick Corporation, mm. Dick Spangler, Charlotte was really blessed with people who had the resources and had the commitment to, um, uh, to build up, uh, build up the community. I mean, we wouldn't have atrium health if it hadn't been for Stuart Dixon and Alan Dixon and the contributions that the Dixon family made to, um, uh, the hospital and healthcare in Charlotte, you know, Dick Spangler is in higher education. It's, there's just a lot of, a lot of resources that got plowed back into the city. Well, just quickly before we go over and jump on Patreon and talk about uh, how you wrote this book and how you write nonfiction, uh, let's talk a, a few writing life questions here just a second. You came out of a newspaper career as a reporter and editor. Uh, you began in Florida, uh, then had a dozen years in North Carolina with the Charlotte Observer. You created and co-wrote a series of articles in 81 that won among a national awards the Pulitzer Prize for Meritorious Public Service. Um, I, I'm curious um, – about uh, you know your writing here was it uh, a natural extension for you to go from those uh, sort of pieces that you wrote as a journalist to writing more long form or did, did was it a challenge for you? It took some getting used to. I mean, when you're you when you grow up and spend I mean and you grow in your career and you spend uh, 15 years thinking 1,200 words is a long story. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's a little, uh, it's a little unnerving to, you know, it's kind of like swimming out into the deep water and, you know, uh, for the first time when you try to, you may maybe have a chapter that's five or six or 7,000 words. Um, it was, it was, it took, it took years to really kind of develop, um, a feel for it. I'm not sure that I'm still, uh, I'm, I'm still learning. I'm still sure. trying to find. Models. David Reynolds' uh, biography of Abraham Lincoln. Abe is a marvelous example of what he calls cultural biography, where you reflect the the person you're writing. You you, you reflect the influence of the times and the culture upon the uh, how that uh, how that created the uh, the personality or the or the uh, uh, careers of of uh, the people who. Uh, you're writing about in this case mm -hmm. Abe Lincoln. Um, I love writing biography. I try to find interesting people. Uh, Hugh McCall, as I said, I was not terribly excited about this uh, when I first uh, thought about it. Uh, but uh, as I sat and listened to him uh, in our first conversation, I didn't take long to be convinced that there was a good story here. Uh, Henry Fry was a little more obvious. I mean, the, but what I tried to do in that was not just write about Henry Fry, but also to tell a story of uh, African-American uh, experience after the civil rights movement. Uh, there's very little written. And when this book came out 10 years ago, there had been very little written about African-Americans, period, in North Carolina. Uh, and everything else, you know, or that that had been written, usually ended with uh, 
the mid-60s. Henry's career began in the late 60s and continued on into 2000. So it was an opportunity to not only tell his story, but also to tell a little bit about what was happening in North Carolina, and the same way with uh, Terry Sanford. That's great. Last question, then we're going to head over to Patreon. Uh, Howard, why do you write? Uh, in the beginning, is because I had to eat. <laughs> I, I left a paycheck in 1986. And uh, ever since I've been doing what I call taking in laundry, uh, <laughs> I do what I can uh, with the talents that I have available. And I've been, uh, I've been lucky. I've been ha- resourceful, I guess, and, and been able to find projects that um, were not only interesting, but um, uh, that with which I could make a little money. So there you go. All right. If you, if you can combine something that's really interesting and fun to do and also make a little money, there you go. That's uh, that's it. All right, listeners, as it said, join us over on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Rears Podcast. Howard and I are going to uh, continue the conversation and talk about uh, how to write nonfiction from what he's learned. And uh, uh, But uh, for now, Howard, I want to thank you for being a part of Charlotte Readers Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Landis. It was good to be here. Enjoyed talking with you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.